Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here with Sharon Stern Gerstmann, the 120th president of the New York State Bar Association and of counsel to the law firm of McGavern, McGavern, and Grimm of Buffalo, New York. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, David. Sharon, thanks so much for being here. I know during your term as president, you focused on the issue uh, that's called the school-to-prison pipeline, a correlation between uh, suspension and expulsion of students while they're in school and later uh, leading to prison uh, incarceration. So tell us a little bit about that issue and why it's so important to you. Well, it actually is part of a larger issue, which is the mass incarceration throughout the country, including in New York State. We just have too many people in our jails. They're disproportionately people of color. Uh, this was a great concern to me when I saw the statistics that in the United States, we have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population. And it's been brought to the attention by a number of public figures that are doing things, uh, whatever they can, in order to both educate the public and to see if there are reforms to our criminal justice system that can cut down on incarceration. Uh, for example, in the news pretty recently is the um, action by many of the DAs to cut down on the number of arrests and prosecutions for marijuana usage and possession with the idea that these people should not be in jail. There, there could be some lesser degree of liability, uh, criminal liability for these issues and, and let's keep people out of jail, let's keep them working and let's keep them as productive citizens the best we can. And so it, in growing out of that issue, there are many things that influence it. And one of the influences are young people that uh, have less than perfect school records, uh, get into some trouble in school and end up not being able to finish school, not being necessarily productive in society, um, and finding really that crime is one of the things that they can turn to in order to sustain themselves. Uh, and anything that we can do to prevent young people from getting into crime and getting into prison, I thought would be a very good thing. So why we call it the school to prison pipeline is, is twofold. First is that there are individuals that have been in fact arrested in schools. Many schools have school officers and they actually call the police. And there have been cases where children have been taken from schools in handcuffs. There's also the idea, even if they're not responsible uh, for crime and for being taken away from school by the police, they are disciplined by the school, but with suspensions or expulsions. And the problem with that is that they don't get the education that they need and they don't get their education at all. They don't become productive and that's when it's more likely that they will end up in a life of crime. And so, I mean, we're seeing lately, obviously because some of the very tragic circumstances that have happened uh, in our schools, 
that parents and school districts are having you know, a zero tolerance for any sort of activity that could be troublesome. I think with an underlying desire to protect the students so that they're in a safe learning environment. This issue uh, raises the fact that sometimes there needs to be some objective action with respect to discipline of students. What was striking to me is that there is a direct correlation between students being disciplined in high school and their later incarceration, um, uh, whether they're either suspended or expelled from school. Um, there's a substantially higher degree of likelihood that they will go on to criminal incarceration. Oh, you're absolutely right that there is that correlation and then the question becomes is there something short of suspension or expulsion that can achieve the same outcome um, that everybody wants? Everybody wants our schools to be safe. Uh, everybody wants students to be able to learn in an environment that they feel safe. Uh, and that was really the purpose of zero tolerance, that uh, it was felt that if the schools could enforce their rules of behavior and um, their, their activities in a way that was uniform, um, that that would be in everybody's best interest. We would make sure that there was no violations of any of these rules within the school so that the, the students would be able to know that they could uh, study in a productive way. The problem with that is that with a zero tolerance policy, sometimes they go too far. And they go too far because there are times when discretion would be appropriate in not enforcing the rules. If, if the student's behavior isn't truly disruptive or if the student's behavior, if disruptive, could be dealt with in a different way um, short of suspension or expulsion, that would really be best for everybody involved. And so one of the, the approaches to school discipline has been what's called restorative justice. And that is working out some other way short of discipline in order to, to make sure that the, that the rules are abided by and that the school is safe. The most frequent of the restorative justice, justice techniques are youth courts. And many of our high schools throughout the state do have youth courts. It was a, a favorite project of Chief Judge Judith Kay when she was our, our, our highest state, the state's highest judge. And what happens in a youth court is that minor disciplinary matters are brought to a court made up of students. And the students decide what's appropriate in terms of uh, discipline and punishment for their fellow students. Everyone has found that it is a tremendous learning experience for the students that are involved in the youth court, that they're very often more creative, and, uh, and exercise sometimes better judgment um, than adults who, who feel compelled to enforce the rules to the absolute letter. And everybody that has had anything to do with youth courts has really been very happy with it. And the, the students that are disciplined by the youth courts in a really minor way in, in comparison to what schools normally impose 
learn from that experience, and there's a lot of statistics that show that their behavior improves, perhaps more so than if they had been disciplined by more uh, conventional means. So it really is a win-win all around. So, you know, one of the things that was is most startling is that if someone uh, that's in school does get involved in criminal activity, and they're certainly more likely to if they've been uh, expelled uh, or even suspended, um, that they're, now the cost of incarceration is, can be anywhere from 10 to 20 times more the cost of uh, education. And so the question is, um, if the cost of a typical, uh, educating a typical student throughout the country is about $12,000 a year, and the cost of incarceration is anywhere from 150 to, to $250,000, uh, can we put, can we do more to make sure that those that are troubled and are struggling in school uh, have a way to stay in school? Well, I think that should certainly be our goal. And the, the cost of incarceration, of course, for adults is also high. But as you've pointed out, for juveniles, it is extremely high because it's not only all of the traditional costs of incarceration, but also the, the state's duty to educate the children within uh, the juvenile facility so that all of those additional costs due to education and counseling um, and with the hope of, of turning that student into a productive member of society when he or she reaches the age of majority, um, it is costly. And we don't even necessarily have the best methods, and it's very costly. There are some states that have done more experimentation with juvenile justice uh, to make it more community-based and to make it more, um, some of them uh, use a, a counselor as an individual caseworker for the for the child and have the, the child in um, less of an incarceration type of mode um, with some success, but those are even more costly. I think when many people think about uh, this issue, they may be picturing someone that is, let's say, dealing drugs in school or engaging in some sort of violent activity, uh, which of course is criminal and there's no place for uh, in our schools. But this issue of suspension and expulsion of students doesn't just affect those that are involved in that kind of violent, high-level criminal activity. But when you have a zero-tolerance policy, it impacts every uh, violation of any school rule uh, that could be affected. And so students that are, might be otherwise perfectly fine students that maybe broke a rule um, are now brought into this kind of mix of uh, this pattern of uh, expulsion and incarceration. Um, what's been your experience with respect to that? Well, you're absolutely right that we tend to think of uh, drug dealers in the school or students who have taken dangerous weapons into the school uh, as the subjects of discipline, but there have been a whole number of cases that are fall far short of that. Um, things like um, one student sharing some, you know, over-the-counter pain relief with another student could be violative of, of a rule in terms of sharing drugs with, with another student. Or a student 
uh, in today's uh, climate where students are uh, in many places or actively protesting uh, in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting, um, there are students that have uh, staged walkouts or, or sit-ins within their schools to bring attention to issues um, who have been disciplined very harshly as well. Uh, so that it, it's not necessarily those that we traditionally think of as the subject of discipline. It's very often some of our very best students who may do something um, that, they, that they feel is, is uh, important to them that may be violative of some rule or may be doing something totally unintentionally that, that becomes violative of a rule with, with serious disciplinary consequences. So Sharon, I know that uh, during your time as president, you traveled uh, and spoke to students uh, throughout the state, um, and that you've had an experience with a student that was an honor student uh, that was faced with this very issue. Um, yes, in fact, she was one of the people involved in um, a walkout uh, in her school in April. Um, many, many students across the country walked out on a particular day in April, and she did that and the school decided to discipline her, make, a, make a, an example of her, and was going to suspend her, which was perhaps going to have some ramifications on her being a member of the National Honor Society, and it might have appeared on her transcript, and it might have affected her, her ability to go to the college of her choice. Um, and, and luckily, she was smart enough and astute enough to appeal the decision to the Board of Education and. Uh, ended up bringing in uh, a lot of support and bringing in media uh, and the Board of Education um, softened the discipline so that it took away some of the, the harsher aspects of it uh, and, and it was a great learning experience for her as well but there was a situation where coming up with a more creative approach rather than the knee-jerk of suspension for uh, for failing to follow school rules um, was the wiser course and was better for everybody all around. Sharon, what do we say to uh, parents and school administrators in this environment today where we have so many uh, very serious concerns about our, our children and, our, and the manner in which they're educated? What do we say to them when, when they take the position, well, I just want my kids to be in a safe learning environment. And if somebody is being disruptive, I don't want them there. And I don't care about the ramifications. How do we address that? Well, you know, certainly a lot of parents feel that way until it's their child who is the subject of discipline. And there are many parents of very good children who have been in that situation and um, and don't quite understand why their children don't get the same protections that a criminal defendant in court would get, that there are um, proceedings that go on without the opportunity to cross-examine any witnesses, um, many, many times without even the, the child being in the room, and they don't understand why, we ha why the schools are permitted to have these disciplinary proceedings without protections for their, for their children. So yes, you know, it, it, it's the old joke that, um, you know, a, a conservative is a liberal who's been, um, who's been mugged and a, um, 
and a liberal is a conservative who's been wrongly arrested. And it, it's, I think, in part that situation that parents become much more aware and are more sympathetic to this once their child may be the subject of such disciplinary proceedings. It was why I made sure that all of the stakeholders were brought together for the task force that I created to address this. So we have representatives of the school districts, of the teachers, of the, uh, the, the lawyers who represent students and, um, and um, parents of students. Um, we have the um, um, people from the prosecution, people from police, and they're all together, the best minds, trying to figure out First, what are the best practices in our high schools and for our school districts? And, and second, are there changes that need to be made in the way discipline is meted out in our schools in the state? Because it's done according to the procedures that the legislature has set out for the school districts that allow those school districts to have these hearings without the children present or without, without what we would consider to be due process. And so we're looking at all of that together and having all of the different viewpoints at the table in coming to a consensus of what the best approach would be. Well, Sharon, this is obviously a very serious topic, uh, one that uh, with uh, some thought and uh, bringing people together, as you've done, uh, we can perhaps improve. Uh, we certainly appreciate the, the work that you've done to shine a light on this issue uh, during uh, your time as president of the New York State Bar Association. And uh, again, this is very serious. We have uh, a lighter side of Miranda warnings here where we'd like you to share with us a, a movie, book, or musical performance that is meaningful to you uh, that uh, you'd like to talk about. Well, um, <clears throat> I, I actually have thought about this a little bit, and um, I, my first reaction was to tell you about a book that I used to read over and over again. Um, but instead, I'm going to uh, tell you about something I was reminded of this morning, and that is that um, because my dad grew up with Mel Brooks when, he's, when he was known as Melvin Kaminsky, we always loved Mel Brooks movies in my family and watched them over and over again. And one of our favorites was the original movie of the producers um, with Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel. And so when I heard that there was going to be a Broadway show, of course, this was quite a while ago, I thought, I have to buy tickets to that. So before it was even known that it was going to be a hit, I bought enough tickets to take my son and my nephew to it. And we went out for dinner first. And then on the way to the theater, we recited every single line we could think of the movie on our way, on our walk uh, to the theater. And, and it was so wonderful to see it uh, in those opening weeks. And, um, and the kids really loved the experience as well. Well, that's great. And so the producers on Broadway was Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Yes. And so, and so your dad grew up with Mel Brooks. Is that, yes. So was he a funny kid? Uh, Mel Brooks? Yes. Oh, yeah. And he was in trouble all the time. He would have been disciplined quite a lot. It's a good thing he didn't grow up with zero tolerance or he wouldn't have had 
all of the wonderful things that he produced. That's great. So Sharon Gersman, thank you very much uh, for being here. The 120th president of the New York State Bar Association and of counsel to McGavern, McGavern and Grimm in Buffalo, New York. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, David. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings for all things legal and some that aren't.